Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're continuing on in our series on this letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus, and we're in the middle of a section here. There's two big sections in Ephesians. There's the indicatives, the things that are true about salvation, how we come to Christ, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, uh, and all the, all the realities that that should uh, create in our spiritual lives. Then the second part of Ephesians is the imperatives, and the imperatives are about what we should do in light of our salvation. And so Paul is laying out in Ephesians chapter 5 and later in Ephesians chapter 6 kind of the way Christians should live because they're Christians, the way Christians should live because they're saved by grace. And that will be the heart of what we're going to be talking about today, this passage on being the light in the midst of the darkness. And so we'll be looking at verses 3 to 14 this morning. Um, I don't tell a lot of stories about our dog, Bandit. There's a picture here for you dog lovers. That's our dog, Bandit. Um, I think a uh, uh, very much beloved dog of, of our, our family, very devoted to his, his mother. Um, uh, goes where his mother goes uh, in those things. And he's been a fun dog. We've had him about five years or so. And he's starting to get a little bit older, a little bit older, like, like many of us. And um, uh, the other day, uh, we were uh, standing in the kitchen talking. It was in the evening. We were getting ready for bed. The lights were turned down a little bit. It was kind of dark in the house, and we called Bandit uh, to follow us to bed, and he ran straight into a wall. He just, just ran straight into the wall, and it was like, you know, stumbled back, right? And, and we've noticed that lately, that his eyesight, his nighttime eyesight is going a little bit. He's not seeing things as clearly in the darkness as he, he does in the daylight. And there's a little bit of a, an analogy for that uh, in, in the way that we think about our spiritual lives, and especially when we think about the fact that some animals, not dogs, but some animals are nocturnal animals. They're built with eyesight that is especially designed to be able to see in the darkness. And if you uh, look that up and study it, I am by no means an expert on this topic, but one of the things that the experts do tell us is that um, they trade something. An animal trades something. A nocturnal animal trades their ability to see color and the fine distinctions that would be present in the daylight in exchange for being able to see in the darkness. I think that's interesting as we come to this passage about light and darkness because in reality if we tune our lives to be able to exist in the darkness we're going to lose sight of the beauty and the color and the detail of what God has given us to see in the day we're trading all of that beauty for an ability in the case of these animals to satisfy our appetites at night so we're going to look at this passage this morning um, and see uh, a number of ways that we're called to be creatures of the light and not creatures of the darkness. So what I want us uh, to see as we look at this passage is that we've been made to be children of light, and therefore we must walk as children of light. But how? How do we do that? How do we do that? That's what we want to see uh, this morning. As I mentioned, this entire book is broken into the two parts, the first part on justification. The second part is talking about how we go from being the old person uh, bathed in sin and not seeing the beauty of Christ, not redeemed, to being the new people who live as children of light. It is the moral framework 
of the life of the believer. And so would you look with me, uh, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to pick up reading this morning in verse 3, and we'll read down through the end of verse 14. This is God's holy and inerrant word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, help us uh, to discern uh, what it means to please you in our lives today. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to the exhortations that we find in this passage, even though it it is hard, it is strong. I pray that we would be humbled under your word so that we can walk as children of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's three uh, answers that I think in general the passage uncovers for us if we look at the question of how we're called to walk as children of light. How do we do that? And the the first of them that I want to look at in verses 3 and 4 is that we must make much of thanksgiving, not sin. We must make much of thanksgiving and not sin. Verses 3 and 4 Uh, give us a a, a list of vices. There's two lists of vices in verses 3 and 4, and the reality is that they're closely connected lists. It may not seem that way, but here's what the list says. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and then in verse 4, no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. And it's easy to take that second list and say, well, that just has to do with sins of speech over here. But really what Paul is laying out is a complex of vices or sins that all kind of exist in the sphere of human sexuality. The first word there on the the first list, sexual immorality, is the Bible's most broad term for sexual immorality. It's porneia is the word for it. And it includes anything that is not Uh, uh, consistent with biblical teaching on sexuality. So it says sexual immorality must not even be named among you. 
And then it goes on, impurity, which is a related word. It talks about things that are not as they should be, that are not presentable to the Lord. And covetousness is tied into this, right? Because God has created sex for a particular reason. It's to be shared between a man and a woman who are betrothed together in marriage before God. And so any sex that exists outside of that context is the result of covetousness. It is wanting something that does not rightly belong to us by virtue of the union that we have before God in marriage. And so that complex of sins He's underlining here, and he's telling us as Christians, as we'll see in a moment, that they shouldn't even be named among us because they're out of place. We're going to talk about what that means in a moment. The second list of sins are related to speech. And like the first, it's not exhaustive, but these are sins where people take the ideas of sexual immorality and they make light of them. Or they... They laugh about them as if they're not much to be concerned about or they use the terminology or they use the things that are happening uh, to make jokes that are crude or demeaning about human beings made in the image of God and in the way that they should function. And he's saying these things, by the way, because the culture that he was writing to in the book of Ephesians, frankly, brothers and sisters, is not that much different than our own. There was broad sexual immorality, even of varieties that we don't see today in a modern Western context. These people understood the threats and the risks of sexual morality. They saw it all the time around them, but they were set apart by God. They were made children of light. And he's saying saying to them that, look, you've left this world That was the world of darkness. You've been transported into the light of Christ. We're called to live in the light of Christ. And so we must put away these things. And that's what he says here. These things should not even be named because they're out of place. That is a very stark exhortation. What does it mean to not even name these things? It's important in terms of how we apply a passage like this in the modern world. Well, a couple thoughts on that. First thought is, he can't literally mean we can't name them. I just named them. (laughs) The Bible names them. The Bible, in fact, is full of stories about sexual immorality. It tells us the truth about the human condition. And so the passage probably isn't saying that Christians can't talk about these things. It is probably saying, though, that if we are going to talk about them, we must speak about them in such a way that we do not normalize them or or take away from them the complexity of the sin and the consequences related to these things, especially these sexual sins, because they are very, very powerful. They are very destructive when misused and if they become a casual part of our lives if we allow ourselves to be entertained by sexual sin even if we ourselves are not participating directly and physically in these things if it's something that we just don't care about anymore then we've done damage to the idea of the light in the world why is that because embracing sexual morality and impurity whether it's physically, by actually doing it, 
or in the form of the way that we think about it or talk about it is a form of covetousness, which is itself a type of idolatry in which we make something take the place of God in our lives. Um, One of the most profound things was ever said to me when I was a teenager about sexual immorality really hit me and affected my life was when my youth pastor said to me, you know, there's lots of reasons not to be involved in sexual immorality or premarital sex or things of that nature, but here's the main one. Someday, that person is going to be someone else's wife. And you are going to be someone else's husband. And you are going to have to deal with that. And many marriages fall apart because of that. So take it seriously now. Take it seriously now. And that affected me quite a bit uh, in my life uh, so that I was able, by the grace of God, to avoid um, that sin by His goodness. But this does bring us to what we sometimes refer to as the Puritan dilemma. I don't know if you know what the Puritan dilemma is. It comes from John 17. And it's when Jesus said this, I have given them, he's speaking of believers, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Puritan dilemma is how do we stay in the world by not being of the world? And the the dilemma really pushes us and pushes preachers Uh, and pushes congregations and Christian people to one hard extreme on understanding what we're supposed to do with this teaching. On the one hand, the tendency is to push so hard to say, you cannot watch, you cannot go to the movies, you cannot turn on your radio, you cannot even hang out with a person who might be involved in this, you can't shop at a store where there might be, and, and all of a sudden the list of legalisms builds up so strongly on the one side that we're like, well, I guess I just go sit in my room. That's one side of the dilemma. The other side of the dilemma is that we go, you know what? It's all around us. It's not a big deal. When I listen to a song on the radio, I know they're talking about things they shouldn't be talking about, but I don't really agree with it, so I'm not going to let it bother me. I'll just kind of tune it out, or I'll watch that Netflix series, or I'll you know, do this thing or that thing. And you kind of really make light of it. Now, at certain times in our lives and at certain times in human history, the Bible really pushes back on some of our cultural ways of doing things. And, and maybe, uh, maybe 50 years ago, um, the, the, the dilemma, the pushback might have been, yeah, you can't hide from everything. Let's be a little careful about telling people legalistically in that way. But maybe today the pushback is on the other side, that we're going a little too easy into these things. We're allowing ourselves to be sucked in to forms of entertainment that really are not of the light. And we just go with it. Maybe that's the pushback. I don't know what the pushback you need today is. I know that the Bible pushes back on both extremes of legalism and licentiousness. 
And so finding the right center is what we're aiming for. Um, so let's be clear. The Bible is extremely direct. We should not be engaged in sexual immorality. It undermines our, our nature. It, it degrades other human beings. It erases our ability to see and entrust the beauty of what that gift really is. Um, I do think, however, that we need to have people in our life that aren't Christians. We need to speak to them about the joy of Jesus. And that may mean talking about this sometimes. Um, it's probably okay, and you, some of you may disagree with me, to watch or listen to things that don't make light of sexual immorality, but take it seriously and say what it is. There are stories and movies and films that do that. But you have to judge in your life whether doing that is pushing you more into it and lowering the standard, or is it uh, something that is uh, causing you to, to not think about it very much. These are the things that, that we need to remember when we wrestle with this. The, the remedy that Paul gives is that we should talk about sexuality with thanksgiving. What does that mean? It says that there in verse 4. Well, that means we talk about sexuality with respect and honor and propriety. We celebrate what God's design for it actually is. It is an enormous blessing. It is a gift of God when it is used in the way that God intended it to be used, something that we can be thankful for. It's a better story the Bible gives us about honoring this part of the nature of who we are, and we as Christians have a special ability and calling to do that, lest the world continue to deceive itself and slip into the chaos that's around us right now on this topic. And so we must make much of thanksgiving and not of sin. That's the first thing. The second thing, we must establish partnerships with the redeemed and not the unredeemed. It says in verses 5 to 7, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words or because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's a strong statement. Who are the sons of disobedience? That's the first thing we need to understand. Well, the, the, the near context tells us that they are the sexually immoral, impure, or idolatrous. That's who the sons of disobedience are. What will become of the sons of disobedience? It says they will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God, for they will experience the wrath of God. And there's no other way to say it except for the fact that they will not be saved. And that is an extraordinarily stark and strong warning. Now what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Because the word idolatry is involved, which I think is a key to understanding this, we have to understand that the sons of disobedience are those that have made an idol out of these things. They are defined by these things. They embrace these things in a manner which degrades their ability to trust in God, either intentionally 
or because they are so immersed in them that they can no longer see the Lord. And there are serious practical consequences of doing that in our lives. So what doesn't this mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that anyone who has fallen into sexual immorality or slipped into covetousness in a moment or been impure can't be saved or even that they aren't saved. It can't mean that because the Bible tells us that David and many Old Testament saints who were guilty of these things are saved. The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 tells us that. The difference is that David and the saints that are listed in the Bible that may have fallen into these things can call their sin, sin. And know that it was rebellion against God. And have turned to the Lord and pleaded with Him to deliver Him from it. If those things aren't true in our lives, then we may should consider the warning that if you persist in these things, you shall not be saved. Because you can't say, hey God, I trust you, love you, value you, but I think you're completely lying to me about my sexuality. You're a liar. I can do whatever kind of sexual things I want to do. First John tells us that if that's the way we act, then we call God a liar. And that's a problem. So Christians, what marks them, what sets them apart, is that they can call sin, sin. Even in their own lives. And that even if they fall victim to these things, and in one way or another, whether it's in actuality or in our thought lives, we do. But we come to the Lord, we repent, and we seek His face for restoration. And that's what the book of Ephesians begins with. What does it tell us? You're saved by being sexually pure, right? No, it says you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But if you understand grace, you understand that you have to repent. And by repenting, you're acknowledging that you need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. Young people, it's not just you. It's all generations have struggled with this. Sometimes teenagers think that they're the only ones that have ever had temptations like this. Listen, (laughs) your parents have too, and your grandparents. Every generation has. And to varying degrees, generations above you have struggled with these things. The most important thing, though, is that we need to come to Christ and call our sin, sin, and trust Him to deliver us in the midst of it. We cannot make our sexual desires into our identities. And that is rampant today. It says here we shouldn't be partners with these folks. What does it mean to be partners? It says don't become partners with them in verse 7. A partnership is an interdependence. It is It is uh, sharing a common possession or claim. That's the idea behind partnership. And what, what the Bible is saying is people that embrace those ideas, you as Christians cannot be in partnership with them. 
It doesn't mean you won't encounter them. It doesn't mean you might not know them or have some kind of a relationship with them. It doesn't mean you can't partner with them, which is why it says in Corinthians that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. That means uh, the imagery is two bulls pulling a, uh, you know, a, a, through a field, uh, cutting a channel for the grain to be sown in, that if one bull is gigantic and one is small, the yoke is unequal, and what will happen is it will curve, and it will go out of the field and into the ditch. That's what unequally yoked means. And if you have a Christian who believes in the things that God has said, and a non-Christian who doesn't believe in the things that God has said, over time, even though you might feel great affection for each other, that gradually that whole thing is going to turn out of the field. And you'll find yourself in a very different place. The same is true, by the way, in business. And this is something that many Christians don't take seriously. When you're in business, sometimes we enter into willing partnerships where we have common possession with people who have no belief in God whatsoever. And that might work for a while, but oftentimes it'll cause calamity because the way that we look at the world is radically different. We need to, we need to take that just as seriously as we do uh, this other form of partnership in marriage. The third thing to see this morning, the final thing, is we must spread light and not darkness. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing uh, to the Lord. It's very interesting. He says you were darkness and now you are light. Well, we're not actually darkness or light. What is light really in the world? Light is a reflection of the sun. Even in the most pitch black night that you go out, over time your pupils open up and you can see things. Why is that? There's no sun. Well, what's happening is the sun, the source of light, is reflecting off the moon or the atmosphere and it's diffusing light into the, into the world that we're living in so that we can still see some things. And the idea for the Christian is, effectively, you're a mirror. And that what shows in your life isn't the darkness of who you were, but when people look at you, they see the light of Christ. They can see because of you in their lives. They can see things that they couldn't see before because you're present in their life. And those things that they should see are those things which are good and right and true. Biblically, those words are basically generosity. That's the goodness of the Christian. The right is the justice of a Christian. And the truth is the consistent belief system grounded in the word of God. That which is good, that which is right, and that which is true. And when believers are ex exposing things to goodness, generosity, justice, and righteousness, and truth, then the world fills up with more and more light. That's what happened, by the way, in the early church. The religion of Christianity, you know, was a small part of the world. And then within 100 or 200 years, it was the dominant belief system. Why is that? Because people that were in the darkness looked and they saw a group of people 
who looked different than the rest of the world because they reflected the light of Christ in their lives. Our calling is to spread light and not darkness. The passage goes on. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What does it mean to expose them? This is one of those fascinating conversations that you can have over the meaning of a passage like this. Because there's one group of people who feel like exposing the darkness is shaming unbelievers. We have to shame them and call them out and tell them how horrible they are and uh, you know, be blunt in the way that we do it. And certainly, that is a way to expose darkness. But the other way to expose darkness is to enter the room as light and to be light in the midst of a dark place. It says it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. When a light enters into a dark room, everything in that room is lit up. And everybody can see what's in that room. And so the question for Christians is, our main job to shame the world? Or is our main job is to walk into the world with light? And this is a debate in Christianity. I like triangles. You guys have noticed that. I'm going to put up for the first time in Trinity history a different shape. Here's the shape, okay? It's a square, but it's a diamond, okay? Here's the thing, okay? We feel tension about what to do with the Puritan dilemma and what to do when it says expose the deeds of darkness. And there's four ways of doing that. And, and what I want to show you today is, you know, actually each of these ways of doing that, there's something right about them. So on the one plane, left and right, you get the people who want to frame culture, that's the monastics, and they want to say there's evil culture and there's good culture, and we've left that to go over here and create something better. That's the monastic model. On the other side, to the right, is flea culture. That's the Amish model. The Amish, just, they just, they're gone from it. They don't do it anymore. They go in their villages, they do their thing their way, and they just don't care about the world anymore. So some people live on that plane of tension. The more common plane in our circles, in evangelical Christianity, is the vertical plane in which we either want to shame culture and point out all that is wrong with it, that would be the fundamentalist option, or we want to sway culture, which is the missionalist option. In the shame model, people want to go and point out that which is wrong. You can't do that, it's wrong. It's not true, it will kill you. You gotta stop, okay? The sway culture, the missionalist, wants to enter in, befriend, and try to create change through relationships. And the thing is, we argue our heads off with each other as if the only way to ever do it is one of these things. And the truth is, there's a moment in all of our lives where one of these ways should be the way we do it. Sometimes we do have to call out and shame sin. Sometimes we have to enter into relationships. Sometimes we need to flee what's wrong. And sometimes we need to frame by living in a different way. And the wisdom of Christianity that we need to seek is for the Lord to show us how we expose the deeds of darkness. And for each of us at this time, there might be different ways to do that. It says in the end, uh, we must spread light and not darkness. And it concludes with this little phrase, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. We're not exactly sure what that is. It might be an early Christian hymn or a creedal statement or something they would sing. And the best evidence is that it was sung at baptism. When a person came out of the dark into the light, the church family around them would sing some kind of a hymn that had this phrase in it, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And in that moment, what the church was, was saying, they were exhorting in song, is that when you have left the old world, you've become something new. You're awake to it. You see it. And by virtue of, of living, you are reflecting the light of Christ. Don't sleep. Let your light shine. Reflect the glory of Christ. A couple years ago, we visited uh, the Southwest with the family, um, and we drove. We were driving from uh, Los Angeles toward Las Vegas on the uh, interstate, and I saw something I'd never seen. Some of you might have seen this before. Here's a picture of it. I was just driving down the interstate, and I looked to my left in the distance, and I saw this thing. I was like, a spaceship has landed in the desert. Is that Area 51? Well, you can't really tell from where you're, that tower, there's a tower in the middle, and that tower is probably 20 stories tall. That's how big, this is more than a couple miles, square mile area. And every single one of those little white blips is a mirror that takes the desert sun and it shines it at a single point at the top of this tower. And when you're driving down the interstate and you see this, it looks like the tower is on fire because it is absorbing all the light of the sun in these mirrors and directing it into this singular place that is then driving turbines and providing power throughout the entire region. And it was such a stark picture of what, what ought to be true in the life of the church because that's what we are. We are the light. But only through virtue of the fact that Christ is the light. The light of Christ should reflect off us and it should change, it should drive the culture around us. When we Christians back away and we can't call sin, sin, and when we sign up to do all the things that the world does in all the same ways, as it says in the Gospels, our salt has lost its saltiness. The exhortation for us as people is that we're saved by grace. Christ has covered our sin. And now he says to us, live as children of light. Is that the way you're living today? I don't know whether when you go home you need to take an honest accounting of the kinds of things you're allowing yourself or your children to be exposed to. Maybe you do. Maybe for you it's on the other side, though, that maybe you're just hiding too much in a room as if keeping yourself holy and away from everything is going to fix the problems in the world. Whatever it is, I'm going to pray this morning that the Lord gives you the grace to see and understand his calling on your life to live as children of light. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning as we reflect on what Paul said to the early church here that we'd be willing, Lord, through the help of your spirit to take an accounting today. These are hard words. They fly in the face of our culture's ways of doing things. They sometimes can feel oppressive to us, but Lord, what you're saying is that if you've been saved, if you've been covered by grace and mercy, live that way. That's who we are. 
And so, Father, I pray you'll teach us a little bit more today and this morning to live as children of light, that we can show the light of the gospel and point people to the joy and the beauty and the color and the wonder and the detail of what we see in the day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.